Hello, and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks, so if you're just discovering the bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favourite app. And if you want to help us keep going and expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Bunker regular and political commentator, Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. I'm caffeinated and raring to go. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so first on the agenda, Partygate is entering what may be its endgame this week. Officials set to be named in Sue Gray's reports don't appear to have lodged any objections, and so the report is set to be published within days. Around 30 people, including the Prime Minister, have been told that they are likely to be named. Assuming the report is published in full this week, what are we expecting to be in it? So if there have been no objections lodged, I think we're expecting the report to be published even today, certainly uh, by tomorrow, Tuesday. I think in order to get a flavour of it, you have to go back about four weeks uh, when the Times quoted a, a, a senior official that had been involved with the report, and the word they used was excoriating. So I think everyone is expecting this to be quite a hard week for Boris Johnson and several senior civil servants who will be named. I mean, evidently, because otherwise, number 10, I think, wouldn't have spent the weekend briefing against Sue Gray if they expected this to be a peachy report for them. So, yeah, so on Friday, it emerged that the Prime Minister and Gray had apparently met a few weeks ago, although there are conflicting accounts of what was discussed. Um, does this story coming out preemptively damage the report's credibility, do you think? Well, I, I mean, we, we will see, because I guess it depends on what uh, what is in the report. If what is in the report is fairly robust, then I don't think anyone will claim that it's some sort of stitch-up. But if it's pale, then it becomes a problem. And so, I, I mean, I, I struggle to see that it will affect it majorly. I think the main, the main effect and the main result is adding to the party gate excuse, if you know what I mean, which is that people put, just put appointments in Johnson's diary and he doesn't know what's going on. And the problem with it is that at the same time, you, you get Tory MPs and Johnson proxies and ministers going on the air and claiming and as his central defense that he's this omnipotent person that got all the big calls right. Okay, that's the, that's the central thing. And at the same time, they present him as this hapless creature with no agency taken by the hand from room to room, you know, like, like a, like a chimp at a PG tips commercial, not knowing where he is, whom he's meeting or why. And I'm not sure that those two things, you know, he's, he got the big calls right at the same time as he's a little bit useless. I don't know that those two things can hold at the same time. We've already had 126 fines issued to 83 people. There's a mm. further inquiry to come from the Commons Privileges Committee about whether Johnson lied to Parliament when he said that no law's been broken in Downing Street. 
on balance, and it's sort of the bigger question behind this, is this stuff actually still damaging to Johnson the more of it comes, or are we just past that point now? I mean, we've got these two crucial by-elections coming in June. Is this stuff still going to be damaging the government by then? I mean, it, it's it's damaging the government all the time, and it has damaged the government significantly mm. because it has it has reversed all their soft ratings. So underneath the voting intention, there are all these questions about com- competence and professionalism and trust and honesty and handling of the economy and handling of, of the health service and education. And all of those really depend on a sort of basic level of public trust. That has been eroded and has been eroded significantly and is very difficult to recover because, as I've said on on this and our sister podcast many, many times over the last six months, the charge of dishonesty, you know, the notion that you're a shyster getting away with stuff is really difficult to get out of because once the public begin to interpret your actions through that prism – Everything is interpreted through that prism, including your efforts to get out of the hole you're in, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what has been Johnson's strategic cleverness over the last few months is that he took it as a given that this was going to look awful for him at some point. So he has focused on neutering his rivals. They were the real danger. You know, with a majority of 80, he realized that the 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 true peril for him was the the Tory party being able to unite around a challenger. And so he has spent a, a, a lot of time, the number 10 machine has spent a lot of time briefing against Sunak, removing trusts from the news largely, and basically going for the people at the top of the, of the Tory members' leaderboard, as it were, without someone behind whom Tory MPs can unite. Johnson is quite safe, ultimately. Mm. Jeremy Hunt, I think, has been the only relatively resilient one, and is clearly on manoeuvres because he's been giving a lot of interviews and um, writing pieces in in the broadsheets in the last week. So I think he's he's the one to watch in terms of someone firing the starter's pistol, as it were. All eyes on Hunt. Um, mm. I mean, the, the story which seems to be the ongoing slow puncture for the government is the cost of living crisis, which is generating just more dire stories every day. This week looks like being no different. On Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, Ofgem's chief executive, Jonathan Brearley, will appear for MPs to answer questions about pricing. Are the government going to be able to shunt the blame for this onto the energy companies, or are the public going to lay this one squarely at Number 10's doorstep when they're new eye-watering bills start emerging? The latter, I think. Um, I think if the if the 2010 election proved anything conclusively, it's that the public will ultimately b- blame whoever is in charge. You know, the, the we ended up in a ridiculous situation where, you know, Labour hiring too many teachers and nurses was effectively blamed for the global financial crisis mm-hmm. as far as the domestic audiences is confirmed. And you can see that a lot of times. Uh, you can see it you know one very very uh, bright example is the is the Reagan election where the the question effectively the charge against uh, Carter was do you feel better off mm. than you do when he, when he took over 
And it's a really, really difficult question because it forces, I think, the people who are defending the position to go into technical chats about, you know, well, there's, there's these global factors and the chain of supply and the war in Ukraine. And it, that's effectively what you want as a position. You want to be asking a really clear question that everyone will answer only one particular way and be forcing the other side to go into facts and figures and statistics and complicated, convoluted explanations that will sound like excuses. So I think I think the, the Conservatives are really badly snookered by this. The scale of it is fairly terrifying. I mean, yesterday, E.ON's UK boss, Michael Lewis, said the rise in energy prices is, quote, unprecedented, and a growing number of its customers are in arrears, and he thinks 40% of customers will be in fuel poverty by October. He's repeatedly called on the government to intervene. He used that word specifically four times in one interview. There seem to be a bunch of different lines coming, depending on which minister is on the sofas from hour to hour. Mm. Um, What are we actually seeing so far in terms of practical measures that are coming to alleviate this or there there seems to be a different line or no line and i think (laughs) that's the problem for the government isn't it that the longer this goes on the longer they look as if they have no coherent policy the longer they send uh, you know their uh, cabinet members and and other proxies on broadcast rounds with effectively nothing to announce other than a holding pattern and that and that's difficult for them and really really stupid M- my view is a windfall tax is now inevitable not only is it inevitable it's entirely logical mm. i mean <laughs> there have rarely been such clear uh, circumstances for a windfall tax this is clearly a windfall you know the the energy companies did nothing to increase their productivity and cut their costs and generate this extra profit. They have literally benefited from uh, a serendipity. And people are suffering as a result. So every tax is redistributive in nature. You know, let's not shy away from that. That's what tax is. Um, And so I think when you have a one-off circumstance where a, a sector has made a bumper profit due to nothing that it did to generate that profit or increase its productivity, and people are suffering as a result, it is such a blindingly obvious and low-hanging fruit to say, we will just take a little bit from here and give it to these people who are really up against it. The, The problem for the Conservatives now is that they feel that because opposition has called for it, they can't now do it, which means they're prioritizing their political position over the welfare of their citizens, which is never a good look. I suspect what they hoped would happen was that they would ride it out during the summer, during which usage is lower anyway, in order to ride in like knights and white horses in the autumn budget, or at least that was the idea. With two difficult by-elections coming up, I don't think that position will hold. I think Johnson will twitch and pull the trigger in a windfall tax. And I think it will be too late to do them any good in the two by-elections and might be the final trigger for 
let's say, Rishi Sunak resigning, which would cause the dominoes to topple and a proper challenge uh, to Johnson. There's a new government in Australia following the victory of Anthony Albanese and the removal of Scott Morrison. Albanese was sworn in earlier today, but has already come out swinging about this being a new era for environmental action in Australia and vowing to, quote, end the climate wars. What do we know about Albanese and what he's promising? So we know that um, he has promised a change in environmental laws in the environmental stance of Australia in general, because we know that Australia has been one of the holdouts, as it were, one of the more denier governments, one of the spoilers at COP26. And so I think not only Australia, but the world heaves a sigh of relief at the removal of Morrison, who had been a difficult person, as it were, for international cooperation. China will be hard to sort. Uh, Australia has been in a difficult position vis-a-vis China for a very long time because, you know, they have this very long-term historical strategic partnership with NATO, but at the same time, their economy and prosperity has been reliant on China for really a couple of decades now. And with both sides hardening and the the, de- the debate becoming more and more binary, are you with NATO or are you with China, that puts Australia in a very difficult position. And I think the fact that Anthony Albanese has deemed that his first official visit will be to Tokyo, I think that might give a hint that he is leaning towards the strategic partnership with NATO rather than the economic partnership with China. So that will be interesting to watch. I mean, he has touted his working class credentials throughout the uh, campaign, and rightly so. And so I think it's fair to expect there will be transformational social policies. Albanese is one of Australia's longest-serving politicians. He was a popular figure on the left of the party, but since becoming opposition leader in 2019, he's tacked more towards the centre, leading to his victory this week. Is there a wider lesson here for, oh, I don't know, Alex, um, another left-leaning party trying to unseat a right-wing bed blocker during <laughs> the country up? Anything you can draw as a wider lesson here? Well, look, clearly there are lessons, because Labour uh, is centred team of field staff uh, embedded within Albanese's campaign. And the the liberal campaign were supported by key Boris Johnson advisors. So there were people like Isaac Levido and Ross Kempsell. Um, they were in Scott Morrison's uh, headquarters. I mean, Levido acted as a senior consultant during the election period, And so there are clearly lessons to be learned, uh, and there was a keen interest on it. And I think actually Morrison losing is a blow to the Johnson government. I think it hints at at a swinging of the pendulum that is unfriendly to them. I mean, the basic slogan of the election for Albanese was no person left behind and no person held back. I quite like that. I mean, it basically takes 
a fundamentally socialist slogan and combines it with a sort of Thatcherite idea mm. to say that somehow we will help you in every way we, we can, but we won't stand in your way. I think that's quite powerful. It's quite Blairite, quite Macronian. I mean, it's a clever calibration. Let's say that. Of course, the devil is in the policy detail. But as a as a simple proposition, as something that people can tell each other in a pub, it, it really is very, very smart. It's a great bit of uh, branding, yeah. It's, mm. um, meanwhile, in uh, far less cheering news, in Ukraine, the war grinds on again, uh, focused mainly at this point in the country's eastern region. Uh, Zelensky came out this morning, said he thinks Ukraine are losing between 50 and 100 people a day in those towns. Over the weekend, Poland's President Andrzej Duda became the first foreign leader to address Ukraine's parliament in person since the war began, reiterating to a standing ovation that only Ukraine could decide its own future and that not, not an inch of territory should be ceded to Russia. Are we starting to see a split opening up between those who think Ukraine must be supported in fighting on and those who are perhaps more sort of real politic and think that something may just have to be sacrificed in order to end the conflict? Mm. I think everyone understands that the latter is true. Um, uh, you know, it will be very difficult to expel Russia at this stage from places like Crimea. Mm. The question is whether uh, you engineer a situation in which Putin's future is fatally wounded, because ultimately that's what will bring change in the future. Even if you expelled all of the Russian forces right now, with Putin at the helm, they would just regroup and try again in five years' time or ten years' mm. time. It is only a change of policy at the top that will actually bring about the result that we all want, which is a, a free and prosperous Ukraine. And so how do you achieve that? That's the question. Certainly, Putin's objectives have dramatically adjusted. And I would argue they've, adju they've adjusted twice during this. The first idea was that, you know, he was going to go in with a, a show of incredible force and within three days they would have basically taken Kiev and changed the government in Ukraine. It became clear very, very quickly that that wasn't going to happen. The next objective became to take all of the, the uh, coastal region of the Ukraine, excluding them from seafaring and building a land bridge all the way across for Russia. And I think even that is beginning to look doubtful now. I think the West providing arms which could, could hit ships from the land was a big, big game changer on that one because I think they had planned to just bomb Odessa from the sea and take it that way. And, and seeing the difficulty they've had with much smaller uh, cities like Mariupol and even, you know, towns, it takes, them, it takes them weeks to take small towns. I think the objective has changed again, and it's now very obviously, if you look at the movement of troops, it's very obviously to take the sort of the whole Lukansk-Donetsk region. <laughs> Would 
Ukraine settle with Putin holding that? No, of course they wouldn't. And I don't think anyone would expect them to. Would they settle for a holding position in which without accepting Russia's claims on their territory, they concentrated their military, their practical effort into defending a line across that uh, region, uh, defending the rest of Ukraine, as it were, rather than actively seek to push back and expel the Russians, I suspect they might. Meanwhile, at a diplomatic level, there's still no consensus on Ukraine's application for EU membership. Uh, Kiev has complained of second-class treatment in this process over the weekend. Um, What's going on here? There's genuinely a difference of opinion um, because what you have to remember is that, you know, setting aside gestures of solidarity, the EU is still primarily an economic entity. And the entry of someone who is whose economy is really quite different and at quite a different cycle, even if you set aside the the destruction that has happened because of the Russian invasion, even if you set all that aside, Ukraine would be would struggle on several of the 16 headings that the EU looks at for membership. And so there's a school of thought that says, let's just admit them and take the hit, Um, because there would be an economic hit. The countries which are net contributors to the EU would need to contribute a lot of money towards Ukraine's membership. And then there's the other school of thought that says, is there some sort of two-speed solution where they can get on the path to membership, but full membership can take a number of years so that we can bring the economies on a, on a sort of more uh, harmonious um, position in their cycles? I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. And just as we were all starting to relax somewhat about COVID, monkeypox has reared its simian little head. Uh, you're obviously not an epidemiologist, Alex, so all the usual caveats apply, but how widespread is this new outbreak and how worried should we be? Well, apparently there's, I mean, there's 90 cases outside of Africa. 20 of them are in the UK, which is quite high. What I don't know is the ease of transmission. And I think that's what people are trying to work out, how easy is transmission or how difficult it is. There has been guidance issued over the weekend that says anyone has has come to in into contact with anyone 
that has this needs to quarantine for a period, I think, of three weeks, which is quite yeah. quite a high amount of time. So I guess we'll see. It's still being assessed. I think what's interesting about it is that it's almost quasi-sexually transmitted, isn't it? Well, yeah, because health bodies are already reporting that it's having a knock-on effect on sexual health services, but it isn't quite an STD. So what's what's the link there? I would guess the link is to do with transmissibility. So ah. if it's not very easily transmissible because it's not airborne, for instance, or because you need quite a large viral load in order to uh, to get it, then I would guess that it relies on significant exchange of fluids, basically, which is what pushes it, it sort of without being sexually transmitted, it pushes it into that category because you need basically prolonged and heavy contact in order to in in order for it to pass along but we'll see we we will see we know very little about it i mean what we do know is that in the vast majority of people it's quite mild we do know that it's it's rarely life threatening and so let's just keep cool and keep doing the science and following the the official advice and finally, the Premier League came to its conclusion yesterday as Man City took the trophy after one of the most exciting, closely fought seasons in years. How will you be feeling the long, endless summer afternoons now, Alex, until matches resume in three months' time? What a day it was, right? It, it felt oh. so incredibly exciting. And yet, when I looked at the table before and after, actually, in all of the key battles, as it were, there was no movement. <laughs> so even after what felt like this this incredible roller coaster, what we ended up was a table pretty much exactly as it had been before the start of the of the matches. So you know that's that's the wonderful thing I think about following these sort of milestone season moments live if you hadn't if you just looked at the table before and the table after you'd think oh all stayed exactly as it was having followed it it changed so many times during those 90 minutes that it was just wonderful to wonderful to experience and that's start your week alex thank you so much for getting up early my pleasure Listeners, thank you for joining us. Don't forget, you can help keep us going by backing us on Patreon. We'd be really grateful and it would make a big, big difference to our operation. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow for the panel show. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Justin Quirk with Alex Andreu. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofinievich and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.